Welcome to the podcast, everyone. This is Nurse Wellbeing Mission. I'm your host, Nathan Illman. I am recording today from a very sunny and rather warm <laughs> office room at my home in Brighton. That's where the Nurse Wellbeing Mission headquarters are currently based. I'm here to bring you another inspiring conversation. Today's guest is Dr. Emma Wadey. She is a registered mental health nurse. She is also the Deputy Director of Mental Health Nursing for NHS England and Improvement. She's a senior NHS leader and she is someone that I was just so happy to talk to again. We've connected previously. Something I love about Emma is her humility And it it just shines through in the way she talks about her clinical work, the way she talks about leadership, the way she engages with other nurses and members of the public. She's just very down to earth. And it was lovely talking to her. So as with all my conversations, we cover a range of different topics. We got started on talking about public speaking, which was really interesting. I think there's some amazing little insights in there about how even people who are well practiced at public speaking like Emma still feel anxious and you're going to hear a lot about her mindset around how she gets through these big public speaking events that she does. We talk about how Emma got into nursing in the first place and how she kind of fell into it after her initial plans of going into the Navy did not work out. We talk about nursing identity and how that can create burnout and how Emma found running marathon running in particular many years ago and how that's created an enormous sense of well-being in her life. We do of course talk about the professional nurse advocacy program. Emma was one of the originators and key drivers of this program and she gives such a lovely overview of what it's all about and we dig into specifically how and why it acts as a suicide prevention intervention for nurses. Overall, this episode is just fantastic. It really gives you a window into the mind of a senior NHS leader. There are some really practical and helpful takeaways, I believe, from Emma's story and her experiences. Uh, Whether you're an individual professional nurse advocate or just any other nurse working out there, mental health nurse or adult, child, learning disability nurse, it doesn't matter. There's, There's lots of wisdom in this episode for you. So a little bit of housekeeping before we crack on with the conversation. I've had a huge response to an event I'm running this week around self compassion for imposter syndrome with professional nurse advocates. This has really highlighted a need for more of this work for me and I've got some ideas, something in the pipeline which is going to provide a supportive community to you PNAs and PMAs out there to give you some skills to manage this anxiety, uncertainty and self-doubt and equip you with some other resources to make you feel more confident in your role. So if you want to keep in that pipeline, find out more about that. I really recommend following me on Twitter if you're on Twitter. It's at Nurse Wellbeing. Find me on there or drop me an email and I can keep you in the loop that way. It's Nathan, N-A-T-H-A-N, at NurseWellbeingMission.com. All right, well, enough about me. Let's speak to Emma Wadey. Amazing. So how are you? Are you are you feeling quite tired out by your presentation that you just did or are you feeling um, motivated? I'm feeling slightly glad it's over because I don't like public speaking and it's harder virtually because you're not getting anything back from the audience to know if they're interested or yeah, you're not getting anything back and you sort of realize when you do virtual stuff how much harder it you could pretend it's not harder because you can't see anyone, so you think it's okay, but actually you can't then see if anyone's interested and change tack or pick up on points and people don't tend to ask questions when it's virtual. And it's the questions that really bring stuff to life, so it can just feel a little bit, not stilted, but one way. So you're talking at people, then you stop and it's over. 
It's more draining. I think it's a bit more intense, actually, because you're staring rigidly at screen, whereas I guess, again, when you're talking face to face, you're gaining eye contact, you can walk up and down, there's a little bit more movement, it's a bit more spontaneous. Definitely. Particularly because they're in person and I wasn't, and I can't see the room mm -hmm. at all, so all I can see is myself, which is a rather scary proposition for most people. Yes, absolutely. You were being beamed into a room. Beamed into a room. That's slightly, <laughs> yeah, it's a scary thought, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I did one of those about 10 months ago and it was strange. It was strange asking questions and putting it out to the group and then kind of hearing some responses and having to have someone repeat things. And Yeah, it doesn't work well. I haven't done many like that. Actually. I've done lots and lots of virtual speaking, but a sound teams at least people can put in the comments. You can answer questions in the comments, even if people haven't got their camera on. But yeah, this when it's a room of people and it's a bit more tricky actually not my preference when you're speaking in public in person do you have a particular style or any kind of like influences that you've had from other people about how to present that's a very interesting question i mean there's always people that you watch present and you think oh, i really wish i could be like them they look so relaxed doesn't look rehearsed it you know they command the audience you know they they kind of have that attention they keep your attention because they're really passionate and animated and it, you know I like that I don't like people that read off slides so I never read off slides but I think again if you're doing a virtual news you can see your slides you can almost get caught in that trap whereas if they're behind me I would just talk a bit more free flow so I guess you're sort of influenced by the context but also influenced by what you don't want and what I know I like to. I don't like talking for long either, normally. Prefer to make it a bit more interactive, ask questions, try and get people involved. Crack a joke that's obviously not funny. <laughs> but, but, you know, try to add a little bit in. Yeah, so that's probably how I like to do it, if I have to. I like stories as well. I think stories are quite powerful. They can grab people's attention and if uh, delivered correctly as well well delivered well can drive home a, a particular point and get people to think about something and yeah you're right I think anything that's stories but also that relates to the audience I always try to know my audience so that you can either say you know when I visited your trust or when I was you know if I was speaking to students you know when I was a student this is how I don't know there's something you always try to relate and make it applicable to your audience I think that's always really important as well so it doesn't feel like it so it feels a bit more personalized and a bit more bespoke rather than something you trot out off pat all the time yes um and that was quite tricky at the one I did before because they wanted me to talk about something very specific to do suicide actually not PNA mm. and it's it was at a suicide prevention conference which means they're less they're not even probably healthcare staff Mm. and again I can't see them so we're normally if you're in person you could have a couple of chats can't you you can kind of go so I'm not that keen the last one <laughs> wasn't my best today it's not how I like to present I'm sure you were very valued so even if it wasn't your preferred style yeah so yeah we'll see but it's always hard isn't it I think presenting every time it's something a little bit different do you like presenting I do it's something that I've learned to fall in love with, I think, actually. Wow. I had a really incredible PhD supervisor who, to this day, he is one of the most important role models in my life, actually. And I remember watching him on stage and just being really taken by his natural, almost kind of informal style that it's really able to engage people and it really helped me when I was doing my research PhD I had him to guide me it made this thing that was extremely anxiety provoking to begin with yeah. actually something to look forward to you know his mindset was something wow. that I kind of absorbed and and it yeah I mean I was presenting at kind of international conferences from a young age at like 21 22 and it was it's you know it's crazy thinking back that I was off doing that at that time but I think what gave me confidence was yeah my supervisor so these some of these people have a real influence don't they and I think now I prepare myself by reframing that anxiety and that nervousness as this is something to be excited about I'm talking to these people hopefully about something that's important to me and I feel like I can 
make a difference in their lives. That's the kind of thing I like to share with other people as well about how to reframe stress and how to reframe anxiety, particularly around public speaking, but other things as well. You know, I'm, I get very nervous and I don't like it at all. You know, I'll be awake the night before worrying about it, stressing about it, rehearsing it. But once I get going, it's OK. It's just the thought of it. I don't have notes. I'm probably quite look quite informal from that perspective. I tried notes once, spilt my water all over them. The ink all ran. It looked like I'd wet myself because I was standing at podium. So it was not a good look. So and I tried to emulate other people that had loads of notes. You know, when you thought this is just not going to work. So yeah. um, I don't have it. <laughs> I tend to have slides with pictures, not loads of words on so that no one knows if I've gone off. Pe- I've got these little, you know, little tricks. But um. I still get incredibly nervous. Never cracked it. It's so helpful, I think, for to share that sort of thing with other people, other you know, your team or other colleagues. I'm such a believer in that. You know, I'm running this event on Wednesday around imposter syndrome for for PNL. Oh, I'd be your perfect example, probably, (laughs) of that. Yeah, even as I'm speaking at this thing just now, I'm listening to myself, thinking, God, this is boring me. Why on earth? Thinking, God, this is just boring, especially because you're not getting the interaction. But um, it's just, yeah, really. I don't know. Everyone said if you practice, it'll get easier. And I've presented a lot over my time because I've always pushed myself to do it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't get easier. It's just always something a little bit different. <laughs> I think next time I'm not going to do that. And I obviously need to come to one of your sessions and <laughs> get over this imposter syndrome. I mean I do joke about different things so I faint as well so I've got vasovagal syncope so I gave a, a talk last not Friday the Friday before to and I was completely unprepared well I was prepared but not for them when I went in so I thought I was talking well I was talking to a group of graduating nurses so they're just graduating and they wanted to hear about my career story which is always awful to have to talk about that because who really cares about what I've done really you know I think god what a ridiculous thing they're going to be interested in but um when I got there it was about 250 of them and the room was awful it was really long but thin so I was thinking how can I I can't even see them all so at least if you're in a lecture theatre you can see all your audience but it's really I thought I'm going to have to keep walking up and down which is a disaster for fainting and I was hot and I'd run too far in the morning as well, which always makes my heart ring. So I started and I said, actually, I'm going to have to get a chair. So I've got basal vehicle sink I'm likely to faint. And if I do, just carry on talking and I'll sort myself out and carry on. I thought I might as well just tell. But that's your story. So I had a chair just in case. But my watch alarmed every 10 minutes to say that my heart rate was abnormal because it was too high. Well, I'd obviously go, yeah, it's like a comedy of errors, really. But <sighs> I still had to go. <laughs> you got through it, though. Yeah, and I had really good feedback. Like you say, I think they thought, uh, I don't know, personable, perhaps a bit more relatable, that you're not this really senior stuck-up person who's perfected. But, yeah, it was it was tricky. I have lots of these stories. You're going to wish you'd never asked me to do any kind of presentation. <laughs> no, I'm loving it. This is brilliant. Well, look, we're in this conversation now. Can we just carry on? Are you OK with us using yeah, what we've been talking about? <laughs> I think that's edit beginning... those bits out where I say, yeah. Natural beginnings are so much better. I think one of the things I dislike about doing the podcast is sometimes I myself slip into like overly formal to begin with. You know, when I, I, I go in wanting to have just more of an informal, just a conversation with people. That's why I do it. I love it. And then all of a sudden there's this build up to the beginning where you're, you're just like, OK, right. So let's start the conversation. It's so unnatural. Yeah. Uh, so it's nice that we've just been been talking about general things I always like to reflect on that anxiety that leaders have around things like this because it really helps doesn't it I think with people who are aspiring there can often be this notion or image of people who are more senior just being rock solid not experiencing difficult emotions and particularly in certain cultures within organizations there is that image of perfection isn't there that's unhelpful so I think people listening to you as a senior NHS leader hearing that you still get anxious about doing presentations yet you still do them and keep doing them is uh, is probably really helpful I have a question for you what makes you keep going on and doing them then if you if you feel anxious why don't you just say no sorry I can't do that it would be nice sometimes to be able to say no and I'd be lying if I said sometimes when I get asked that I think fantastic let's go ahead with it because sometimes 
the thought of some of them are just absolutely terrifying. Yeah. But at the same time, I suppose there's two things that always drive me about it. One is, especially now in this particular role, how important it is that I'm visible and that I'm representing the profession. And that's really important to me. So I can't advocate on the one hand that we need to have visibility as nurses, as mental health nurses, and not be prepared to put myself in that visible space. So I think there's something about role modelling that um, that's really important. So that will always make me say yes, go that extra mile, literally that extra mile, because I do do a lot of travelling to get to these places and go out of my way to put myself in these positions as well. So it's not always that I go for the local places or places that are easy to get to or that I can squeeze in my diary. Often I'm trying to do as much as possible in, in um, you know, between different things and at difficult times because it's so important for me to get that that message out there. So that's always been a real significant driving force really about about role modelling, saying, doing as you say, not just saying and expecting everyone else to do it. So that's the, the first thing. I suppose the other thing as well is things I would always say to others is a little bit anxiety is a good thing. It keeps you sharp, it keeps you focused, but also it shows you care. And it, I'm anxious because I want to do a good job. I want to reflect well on my profession. I want to come across well. I want to share something or share the work of others. And I want to do that in a way that's respectful, but you know, interesting, exciting, inspiring to others. And so I think some of the anxiety is, is also driven, not necessarily by a perfectionist, because I'm not a perfectionist, you know, I like to try and be perfect, but I'm absolutely not. But it drives because I also want to do a really good job. You know, people have taken the time out of their day to listen to you. I want it to be worthwhile. And that kind of adds a bit of extra pressure, doesn't it? So some anxiety is good, but I do force myself because I think it's important. I think it's expected. And I think particularly in this scene, role, it's an absolute must that we're out there and willing to be out there. Yeah, real strong value of advocacy. That's great. Are there any other ways you feel like you really try to do as you say then? Anything else related to nurse well-being, for example? Um, I suppose generally around nursing per se that I've always maintained clinical practice. And I guess that's the other area specifically that I would say I've always stayed true to my nursing roots, if you like. Yeah, I didn't grow up wanting to be a nurse, but once that decision was made, I've absolutely loved it and it, it brings me back and reminds me about why I came into the profession. So ensuring that I'm clinically active, not just clinically visible, I think is one example. So and when I'm in clinical practice, I'm the same as everybody else. And that's really important. I'm a member of the team, the same as anyone else. It's not I'm not there giving out orders or delegating. I'm doing part of that team. So that's really important. I think that's kind of linked to well-being as well, because I've often joked, but it, it's actually not a joke, that it's the element that also keeps me sane and grounded. It keeps you reminded about why we come into what we do and why it's so important. Some of the things that I have to do to preserve that. And of course, part of that is preserving the well-being of my nursing colleagues as well as myself. So I haven't always got it right about role modelling well-being. So I'd be lying if, and I'd be lying if I said I got it right now, actually, in terms of work-life balance. But I do, I'm much more aware of when I'm going off kilter and I really try to keep it in check. So really keep to my boundaries around time, for instance, having time away, having some time supposedly to have a lunch break. I'm not always sure I'm completely away from the desk, but I book that time in. So, yeah, there's quite a few things that I try to role model as much as I possibly can. But I would say I'm still learning all the time to do it, all of the time. I'm really interested to know about your running. So I yeah. read you had done some marathons and this was a few years back. Tell me about yeah. the running. I'm constantly running. Uh, so I suppose one of the things I noticed that for a long time, I didn't really have any space for me. It was either work or family. I had my um, children obviously very young because my eldest son is nearly 28. So, of course, I was teeny tiny. So I kind of got to quite a senior position. So this is this is my ninth anniversary of running this year. And my children were getting older and I was just work home, work home and nothing in between. And I think when I look back, I was actually getting quite burnt out. Mm. Wouldn't have necessarily called it that at the time, but I needed to do something that was just for me. And I was set a challenge by my oldest son at the time who thought it would be hilarious to suggest that 
we all took it in turn to run a marathon and I was the last one to, to run it because I hadn't run anywhere more than 100 metres. No one actually thought I would do it. I didn't think I would do it because I couldn't even run for a bus. I remember going out for my first run, running around the block and collapsing on the bed for about an hour. But I was determined to uh, prove them wrong because I'm stubborn and obstinate. So I did train for a marathon nine years ago. And it's been the best thing I've ever done, actually, because it opened up a whole new world for me, a whole different space where you're not a nurse, you're not a mum, but you're just yourself. You're kind of accepted as equal within that space, mainly because you're trying not to uh, run out of breath and die on a run, literally. Um, opened up a whole new world of people that I wouldn't otherwise have met. Mm. I found that my life had become quite small. You know, it's either work colleagues or, as I say, family which is great but I just didn't have anything in between so I opened up this whole new social life I suppose or group of friends in a different space um, and it's something I've kept up and I'm quite religiously running so still run I run four times a week run before work now always make time to do it. I used to run late at night after work but it doesn't quite work as well to be honest in terms of well-being if you can't eat and then sleep properly but it certainly gave me space it gives me space to think it gives me space outside I love being outside and particularly as we moved um, during Covid to more virtual home working although I'm still out practicing and out and about and um, you stuck you can be stuck in front of a screen so again running gives you that outside space so I've absolutely loved it it's done a lot for my mental health I would say it's also done a lot. Interestingly, you hear so much from the people that run with you that then start to share about their own mental health. Mm. It's quite a leveller, um, which has, has its downside because sometimes I feel if I'm on a club run that it's lurching into work. <laughs> and so I do balance out between running in a group and running on my own. But yeah, I've absolutely loved finding that. I don't think it matters what your outlet is, but certainly I didn't have an outlet and I needed to find one. And running has become that for me. So I run everywhere I go wherever I am on those days that my running days I will run so last week I ran in Nottingham I ran in Newcastle I'll be running in York when I go to visit a trust there next week I run every Friday after my clinical shift and the way home by the sea so I've really you know brought it into that work-life balance as well in terms of also using it as an opportunity to sightsee when I'm out and about if you run far enough you really can see some sights can't you I remember when I lived in London it was fantastic when I was training for a half marathon even yeah. that distance it was it was wonderful but you don't want to talk to me about running too much because I've become a bit nerdy and tell you all about the training plan that I'm on and how you know that would get really sad and nutrition that's the other thing about I suppose any sport you're more self-aware about your own nutrition and sleep um, and it helps you pay more attention to those other aspects as well as the actual activity itself and it was those other aspects that I probably wasn't paying as much attention to as well so it's, it's had lots of kind of physiological benefits beyond the actual running, making sure I'm drinking lots of water, for instance, and keeping hydrated when it's really hot. What do you think are some of the takeaways from your experience that are transferable or perhaps advice you could give to other nurses then who might be burning out a bit, probably focusing maybe too much on work or like you, like your experience really only had work and family particularly people with kids as well I imagine it's it's quite easy to slip into that isn't it because there is such a a demand of your attention from children what what kind of advice would you give nurses who are perhaps not really well they don't really have things balanced in their life or they don't have that much variety of other activities that's quite a difficult question I think because it's it's so unique to each individual and I, I suppose when I think back that at the time I don't think I could see an alternative you know I really wanted to complete all the work that I needed to do at the time so often in my career I've been combining work and also study so I only just graduated from my PhD last year which I did in my own time so I was stretching myself too thin but I'm not sure that I could always see it myself and I think actually I took up running to avoid doing the PhD if I'm on it now when I think about it it was an avoidance strategy probably as well but but I, I wonder sometimes when I was really in the thick of that, whether I could actually see it and what I actually needed was someone else to reach out and go and give me permission not to do something. Whether it would be to have a whether it's just about having a lunch break on your own sometimes or going off and listening to music or doesn't have to be something as regimented as running frequently, because that, that's difficult when you've got your kids are small. And so I kind of waited till they were older. But I do wonder if it's sometimes looking out for a mate and pointing it out, because when you're in it, you're kind of on that hamster wheel. And I don't know that I'd have always seen it. So there's definitely something about 
reaching out to your friends and noticing it in others and when people perhaps can't see it themselves. I think there's something also about just acknowledging how hard it is to balance all the time and that sometimes it isn't balanced and that's also okay. Yeah. It's just noticing when it's like that all of the time. So, you know, it's okay that some, it's not okay if you finish work late, but, you know, you, you can manage that a couple of times, but it becomes all of the time. And trying to think of strategies like setting your boundaries and then being able to stick to them and setting them quite small. So one of the first things I did was not answering emails at weekends. You know, sounds quite minor, but just even trying to break up that quality family time from work and just making sure the two, again, if you're working from home, the two can merge too much. Yeah. And you end up with no break in between. So I think it starts small. There's something about looking out for each other. And it, as I say, it doesn't have to be something major like taking up marathon running. So, But it is about just carving out that little bit of space that gives you a bit of a breather, actually. Just some headspace. Yeah, starting small. These things really do make a difference, don't they? The small changes with setting boundaries and lunch breaks. When you create those new habits, it, it really starts to snowball. I think. And it is about creating a habit, exactly as you say. It's something you have to work at. Mm. You know, most, I'm quite into, you know, I've got into running, but most times I don't really want to run. It's the hardest step is that first step out the door. And I know it sounds a bit cliche, but it really is. Yeah. But it is taking those first steps and doing it sometimes with a friend, isn't it? Sometimes it's great running and certainly in those early days. And when I was picking up the distances, it's always better because you don't want to let someone else down. That really plays to nurses. We don't like to let other people down and we like to be co- So if you've got someone else that you're meant to be doing something with, um, it does force you out the door a little bit more. Yes, I'm a big believer in that as well. Having a partner, buddy, accountability partner can be good, can't yeah. it? For all sorts of things. Exercise is one. But for other but even a lunch break, you know. If someone comes to meet you to join you for your sandwiches, it's a bit more tricky to say, hang on a minute, you know. Yeah. It matters. Definitely. So I'm not going to ask you to recount your career story. Um, <laughs> I probably even remember half of it at my age, and it's not so, very interesting. I thought something that would be quite good to ask you would be, well, obviously I, I know and people who already know you know that you're involved in uh, projects related to nurse retention, the Professional Nurse Advocacy Programme, you've done work around suicide prevention, so I'd be really interested to hear from your perspective, what are some of the early experiences you had that you feel kind of shaped the direction that your later life took? Well, that's a very interesting question, isn't it? Before nursing or just in nursing? Whatever you think is relevant that you don't mind sharing. So I never, ever wanted to be a nurse. It wasn't the career that I thought I would have. So I was actually wanting to be in the Navy. So I did everything to be ready and prepared to be in the Navy. So always been quite an active person. So obviously half of these things have not applied in nursing, sort of learning to tie knots and sailing and engineering, but I wanted to be an engineer in the Navy. So I didn't have this kind of desire, I suppose, or didn't have a nurse's outfit. I didn't have a first aid kit, but didn't have a desire to do nursing per se. But what I did do as part of my preparation for wanting to join the Navy, I was a cadet and part of being a cadet, there were first aid competitions. So I, I did win a couple of those. So I can tie a very good bandage and make a sling, but I'm not sure there's been much call for that in mental health nursing. So I'm not sure that that necessarily prepared me per se, but I suppose what did prepare me was that plans don't always work out how you expect. Um, and certainly that, you know, I, I was very committed to being ready, Navy ready. And then life happened and that wasn't to be. So I actually started my nurse training as a single mum. So I had to quite rapidly have a plan B and nursing was my plan B. And I guess that's quite a good life lesson in itself that you have to expect the unexpected. Sometimes you have to be flexible and that's not always a bad thing. And you don't always have to have everything prepped. You know, I spent sort of 10 years, literally from when I was seven to 17, mapping out the day that I would join the Navy and everything that I needed to do to do that, that regimented and committed to the point, you know, I didn't apply to go do A-levels at university because I was joining the Navy, everything was geared and all of a sudden something else happened. So when I do talks in schools, it's always saying to people, you know, you don't have to have everything mapped out and sometimes it's good to have other options and if you, if life takes a different turn, that's okay too. And I think what that taught me was also to take chances 
So probably a bit before I was a bit risk adverse to say I had everything mapped out. But when I came into nursing, I was really open to learning. I didn't have a set plan or a goal. I had to kind of let that go a little bit. I was a little bit more, um, yeah, a bit more relaxed um, and open to opportunity. And that really stood me in good stead in those early days because in my early roles, I was so fortunate that it was at the time, which sounds like a, a completely different world now, but it was a time of real reinvestment in mental health services. And so there was lots of investment, lots of opportunity, lots of new services. So it really was a bit of a golden age, which makes me sound very old now when I think about it, sort of the late 90s. But it also meant that I had this mindset that I would give it a go and so I I took opportunities that perhaps I mightn't have done if I hadn't had that kind of <laughs> side sideways um, move into nursing as opposed to something else. So I took on secondments. I was happy to do fixed term and I was really open to that learning and I wasn't afraid in perhaps the way that I might have been before. I didn't have a, a plan. So I think that's probably one big thing. And that's certainly something I talk to new nursing students about when we talk about, you know, what are your plans for the future? And I'm always quite surprised when people have an end career in goal already. Um, I still don't have that now. And obviously my career's nearing the end, not not that close by, but nearing. Whereas much more in those early days, I just wanted to learn, just wanted to try new things. And that's meant I've had the most, you know, fantastic opportunities. I've had some real difficulties as well. It hasn't been an easy, hasn't been a ladder to climb easily or there's lots of things that haven't worked and jobs I haven't got but it's also meant that I've had some huge opportunities that I wouldn't otherwise have had so I think that's probably one of the the big um sort of profound things other things that stood in my mind is I like to look outside the box and be really positive and try to do things in different ways I don't have a history of knowing anyone that worked in mental health or mental health services so perhaps I wasn't constrained by some of the we do it like this around here mentality. So again, when I qualified, I did some really what might be seen as quite weird and wonderful things now, retrospectively, in terms of how I might engage with people that wasn't the norm or the done thing at the time. And I got away with it. It was safe, by the way. That sounds a bit dodgy. Can, Completely can safe things, but I did things a different way. Can you give an example? So I qualified and I qualified as one of the, if not the first, newly qualified community psychiatric nurses so those roles were normally for people at the end of the career which is how I thought I might end my career because it sounded fantastic Monday to Friday nine till five could pop to the shops you know on your visits and sounded brilliant but I actually had an opportunity to um, fix term to cover someone else going off to do their court to do a full-time course and so I was given a caseload of people to see and I just thought you know when I spoke to the people that I would go to see about what mattered to them and the role traditionally had been I always remember someone saying to me oh my last nurse used to come and watch the cricket here I don't like cricket particularly so that wouldn't have worked and give me my injection and I remember saying oh really I'm not sure that's what they taught me in nursing school was what I'm going to be here to do and I thought I'm here to talk about your recovery goals and what matters to you they probably thought oh my goodness but then but they would talk to me about what they wanted and then we would do that so I would do things like go shopping go roller booting I set up a cinema club I set up a swimming club um, we also, I set up a forestry club where I used to make the sandwiches and build bonfires with the Forestry Commission um, and work with young men that had severe mental illness in that way. So things that were kind of not, normally it had been you'd visit people, you'd give them their injection, you'd have a chat and you'd come away. And that just never felt enough to me. That's not a life worth living for someone. They wanted to re-engage. So, so yes, I did some really weird and what might be seen as weird and wonderful things. Always safe and with the caveat of it being with the person but worked very differently probably no not probably I worked very differently to my peers at the time and that's probably it. still a little bit like I am now it sounds like you're really willing to get on the, you're on the same level as people you're not seeing yourself as above them or superior to them and you're really caring about like you said what matters to people and helping them achieve what what's important to them rather than imposing something else on them I always thought that's what we were meant to do yeah. And I still think that is exactly what we're meant to do. You know, our role is to, to come alongside people mm -hmm. and it is about helping them recover, if that's the right word. Um, but it's helping people achieve what they want to achieve, whatever that might be. You know, people would say, what did you do today? It probably sounded quite odd sometimes, you know, that what I might have done for now is help someone clean out that. Well, actually, what I did do quite often, one particular person I saw once a week, we cleaned out his goldfish. That was really important. It's important to the goldfish. But I always felt that's what we're here to do. 
And that's our gift as mental health nurses, that we see the whole person and we see, we help them see what matters and we help them achieve it. And I, I like to stay true to that now. It's not always possible. I work in quite a different role at the moment, which is a bit different to be able to do that in quite the same way. Um, but I absolutely love that job in those early days, doing those sorts of things. That to me is is mental health nursing. Brilliant. So I'd like to talk about professional nurse advocacy, suicide prevention, topics that you and I started talking about first time we met. And I'd love to expand upon some of the things that we were talking about. Could you just give an overview of the the PNA program and I suppose the the little origin story you told me before might be helpful for people to hear for people who don't even know what it is. Yeah, so the role of professional nurse advocate from a dry perspective is a postgraduate qualification for registered nurses. So it's a master's level program and it equips nurses um, with a framework that is called A Equip. And it's a framework of skills and knowledge on four key areas. Um, the one that's most well known and associated, I would say, with the professional advocate role is its link to well-being and particularly through the delivery of something called restorative clinical supervision. But it's only one of um, four key elements. And for me, I always say that it's the four elements together, which is about creating cultures of learning, of leadership, of development, of quality improvement. Um, and it's the collection of all that together underpinned by recognising that all of our work with patients, as fantastic as it can be, is also really, really stressful sometimes and that we we are emotionally impacted from that. And what restorative clinical supervision, it recognises and provides a safe space for people to talk about the emotional impact of the work so that we are then enabled to leave that, if you like, in the workplace so that we go home and we're not taking that, that burden with us in quite the way that we might always but also that we can then use that to really think differently about how we then support both our colleagues ourselves, but ultimately how we improve patient care. So from a dry perspective, it's a it's a master's level framework, but the, the joy that it brings is that it, it kind of has created a framework and a bit of a social movement that really values the nursing contribution. It provides a sense of identity for nurses, or it certainly has done. It really has demonstrated that and it was only a very small pilot, which I can talk about started. But for me, I'm always amazed every day about the amazing things that those individual nurses have done as professional advocates. They've gone way beyond my expectation of what the role could be and will be, because I think it's still continuing to grow. But for me, the reason why we came up with this idea, and I say we because when I came into this national role back in 2020, um, I knew two things, well, I knew three things. One, I was terrified because suddenly you're the professional lead for mental health nursing, which is quite scary to, to think that you're, yeah, the, the ambassador, if you like, for that whole profession. But I also knew that there was a significant mental health impact of the work on nurses and that for globally, actually, this was um, demonstrated, if you like, from us having a very high suicide rate, particularly for the nurses, female nurses. And there's been some work that had um, some research that had already come out that demonstrated that female nurses had the highest rate of suicide. And I think that's interlinked. I think that there is a link between suicide is multifactorial, but there is definitely a link to how we feel valued, invested in, how we support ourselves, the skills that we have in order to maintain our own well-being and that. And then, of course, I also knew that COVID was on the horizon and it gave me an opportunity. It gave me a platform because I was a clinical lead for mental health to raise my concerns about the mental health of the workforce. But more importantly than that, it gave me a platform to do something about it and I used it and I listened and I went out and I spoke to nurses and I asked them, what would it be that would make a difference? Not today, not tomorrow in this crisis, but what's gonna make a difference for us as a profession, as individuals going forward? We've got to start doing something different. We can't carry on as we are. There'd been some work done by a midwifery called the Professional Midwifery Advocates. And of course, this is fundamentally based on that. But there are some differences. And I think the drivers for the work is quite different. And it, I think those timing was really key on this as well. But what was really, really critical was that nurses absolutely wanted and needed something that provided credibility, that invested in them, that gave them a collective identity and almost permission. And that's what I was able to do. I was in a position that I could use my influence, my position to bring together 
and gain funding for initially just a very small pilot, something which could look to transform the way that we think about the work that we do and the way that we need to do that work going forward and the role that nurses as individuals and collective have within that. So yeah, professionals advocates has been a strange piece of work in a way because it was always a bit of a side hustle. It was always something on the side that I felt was important. Still feel it's incredibly important. It's probably one of the most important things I've done in terms of nursing as a collective, although not necessarily the the most important thing from a patient perspective for me personally. But certainly when I think about the amazing things that those individuals have done and continue to do, it's humbling really. And when we hear that it's saved nurses' lives who have said that they would have died without it, it's unbelievable really, the whole programme. So it started from very humble beginnings of just wanting to do something different, thinking about how I could do it. And then those individual nurses who didn't have a clue what it was and those universities that decided to develop a programme that didn't exist in record time have absolutely taken it to a whole new level. As I said, that I never imagined. So it's been a bit of a phenomenal ride, I would say, and that's still continuing a bit like a roller coaster in terms of the impact that it's having, but the potential impact that it can have, I think, is unknown. It's probably the most uh, impressive side hustle that I know about. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be great to just dig in a little bit more to the suicide prevention aspect of it. I want you to imagine there are PNAs out there, professional nurse advocates and professional midwife advocates, who are completely naive or blind to what suicide prevention entails I know it's multifactorial could you describe I mean you don't have to go into technical things but kind of some of the mechanisms by which the supervision that people are providing acts as a a suicide prevention kind of intervention yeah so the way I tend to start describing the role of PNA now is in relation to suicide prevention is seeing it as post-traumatic growth So what I was really concerned about that started, I'm really, really pleased that there has been such a focus on the mental health, not just of nurses or healthcare staff, but the mental health of society, really, and much more openness to talking about the psychological impact that things, events have on us. And I really welcome that. But I also worry about how we medicalise normal responses and how we medicalise everything to almost feeling like it's inevitable. And I suppose some of the my concern in the midst of COVID, that although I knew that what individuals had to experience, both personally and professionally, no one should ever have to experience that level of trauma, having to work in ways that did not fit your values or in which you knew that might cause some harm is incredibly soul-destroying and very difficult to kind of manage on an and when that's con- on a you know on a one-off basis it would be really difficult when that's continued it's it can feel impossible but I also knew that it wasn't inevitable that people would have post-traumatic stress that they would become in it there were things that you could do to make a difference and I knew that there are conditions which we can put in place that mean it's more likely that people are able to survive but also thrive and for me the PNA was an opportunity and a way of ensuring and creating conditions that people thrive. And some of the most basic elements of that was just telling nurses that even though we're in this state of crisis, we don't have enough nurses to run a ward, we don't have enough resources for you to nurse in the way that you want to nurse, I'm still going to invest in you as an individual. And that was so significant in those early days. That even though we're short, I value your contribution, the contribution can make enough to give you the time off. And so I think the most basic thing around PNA was it enabled nurses, it made them feel valued and it made them feel invested in. And that's the feedback I had. And it made them feel less of a number, it made them feel a person, it connected them back to humanity. So at that basic level, what we created was that general sense of being yeah valued purposeful which we know is a significant link to suicide is when people don't feel they have purpose when they lose connections we know that can be really risky and what the PNA role has done is it's created new networks and connections it's given people purpose it's given people agency 
So it's given people confidence as well as competence to feel able to do something about it, to have influence within their areas, to change things for the better. And they've done that by creating the safe spaces and saying it's okay to feel this hasn't been a good day, it's okay, through the restorative clinical supervision and really normalising this is business as usual. And that is where we're at now with things like restorative clinical supervision. But it gave nurses agency also in thinking we can do something differently. And so some of the improvement programmes and projects that nurses have done have been phenomenal in terms of improving their work-life balance, but improving the care environment, improving patient care has just been phenomenal and in such a quick space of time. And we know that all of those things have an impact on people's well-being from a positive aspect and create a protective layer which means that people are more able to cope when things aren't as good as they should be and so it creates that protective layer but it also means that when people are struggling they feel more able and less stigmatized and less shamed to seek help because we also know that possibly, I say we know, we think, my hypothesis is perhaps we have a high rate because people feel too shamed to seek help or they don't know where to seek help from. Mm -hmm. And so the other side of this is that these roles take away some of that shame. They create relationships where it's okay not to be okay. And we've been able to give a huge group of individuals knowledge of where they can signpost and support people to seek help when they need it too so that people seek help sooner rather than when it's too late. And when it's too late, it's too late. So I think for me, that's where it's really fitted into being a suicide prevention initiative, as well as a patient safety critical task, because we also know and it is evidence that where staff are well, we give best care to patients. So it kind of creates a loop. All we ever want to do as nurses is do the best by patients. And you'll hear that all the time. And we think that we do that by putting ourselves second. And I guess the PNA is also rebalancing that, is that we can only do that if we put ourselves not first but equal to equal to patient needs and I think we've started to create that shift in thinking so that it's much more of an equal partnership and that one patient care relies on self-care so kind of that's how I try to describe it hopefully not too technical jargon and that's certainly where we're starting to see a real impact is in those areas and where I hope we'll start to see an impact around suicide prevention. For individual PNAs who are out there in the field at the moment who may feel a little bit uncertain, a little bit shaky, not particularly confident. Can you share a, a message of reassurance or something, I suppose, a brief message taken from all the things that you were just saying to speak to those individuals who might feel a little bit unsure of themselves, just to remind them of something important about what they're doing? I think fundamentally the thing to remind themselves is what amazing individuals they are that they've been willing to put themselves in these positions because this is an extra ask if you like it's and um, that's part of the beauty of it because we haven't um said that it had to be anyone of a certain banding or a certain grade it, it carries with you it matches people's values so I think fundamentally I always think start with yourself apply those messages of self-care to yourself reach out to others. We've now got such a strong growing community and we are stronger together as a community. You're never actually alone. And so what I would say to those is almost don't panic. It's good to be uncertain. It's good to take time to embed. Reach out, reach out to your peers, listen to your peers. Um, and yeah, you're never truly alone with this. And certainly what we're really thinking about going into this our third year is how we can still um, continue to support that continual professional development and support and sustainability. Because we know that it's growing and it's growing at a huge rate, but there are still some that are feeling quite isolated. So, you know, reach out. I'm happy for people to reach out to me personally to help reconnect because we know there's some organisations that are further forward than others so we can really bring together. But see it as an opportunity, not having something, going back to what I said at the beginning about things not being set out, often have P&As, well, what do I do now? Thinking there's a a set way of doing things the beauty is that there isn't that you've got time to listen to shape it and, and really shape it to your strengths so hold your nerve that's probably the shortest way to say it great hold your nerve and it, it sounds like there's you're encouraging scope for flexibility and creativity within the role how people uh, deliver on the it's the overarching framework but people can apply it in the way that they want to 
I think that's been its strength though, because I think if we'd been too prescriptive, this wouldn't have worked. There isn't a one size fits all. This really plays to an individual's strengths as well as the needs of their environment. Mm -hmm. And that's what's allowed this to thrive and will continue to enable it to thrive. But it gives that space for innovation, really. So you mentioned earlier, you said something about being towards the end of your career, which I find it very hard to believe. <laughs> but I'd be really curious just to kind of finish us off for you to share a little bit about what is on your mind around this latter end of your career if that's the way you're perceiving it what what's your priority and what's your kind of internal vision of where you would like to go with your career and the the kind of projects and impact that you want to have on nurses or or other things so this is my 27th year in nursing so i kind of feel that i should be i am in my twilight years although not you know I've still got probably at least 10 years at least my ultimate aim is always that I just want to do the best by patients and I'm as I say I kind of want to keep that open mind a little bit as to what that might look like in terms of best meeting the needs and I guess widening that out to think about mental health nursing I want to continue to strengthen us you know we are limited in numbers as a profession nursing itself I think perhaps hasn't always had the positive image that it could do and it's not always obvious the opportunities that nursing as a career can bring. And so I still feel like I've got unfinished business on, on both areas in terms of really championing and role modelling the impact of nursing, not just in England, but internationally. So something I'm really interested in is that international piece and how we can become part, much more closely part of an international community of nursing and, and have strength in numbers across. And certainly things like the PA work, for instance, and the suicide prevention work, we are world leading in, and there is lots of interest globally. Um, so I think there's lots more we need to do and that we can do collectively together, but from a, a global perspective. So I don't think my work's done, but I also think I'm starting to be a bit of an old crow and it's really good to get new people. And I'm always really keen that I'm thinking and developing those around me. One, because they have far better ideas than me. So it's much better to have that collective ideas and voice. But two, it's really important that there's we evolve and there's change and there's fresh innovation. So. Yes, I'm constantly thinking that bringing the people around me, thinking about how we can further embed the work that's already underway, but continue to evolve, um, I think is really important. But yeah, I've probably unfortunately got about 10 years before I can completely hang up everything. You can achieve a lot in 10 years, Emma. <laughs> I know, just imagine. And I don't even know what that is yet. And that's the exciting thing, isn't it? Is that that could be anything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for all the work that you do. You've clearly had a remarkable impact on uh, not just nursing, but obviously with the, the patients, the service users, the people that you work with clinically as well. And I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to be a part of the PNA program and helping support the, the development of those nurses. It's uh, it, it's an amazing opportunity, and I really value that. So no, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share.